Hey, this is Jared Wellman. I'm the lead pastor at Tate Springs, and this is our podcast. God is telling a story of hope and redemption. Hope and redemption. Redemption that can only be found through Jesus Christ. I hope that this is a blessing and inspires you to discover your part in God's story. Good morning. Go ahead and take your copy of God's Word with me and turn to the book of Romans as we continue this sermon series called When in Rome. When in Rome. And uh, we are going to be in Rome chapter... Uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1. Uh, Romans chapter 1. And we're going to look through verses 1 and 6 uh, and verses 16 and 17. Now, in storytelling, there's a device... Uh, and the device uh, is used to try to hook in uh, the audience, whether it's a film or a book, uh, called flash forward or prolepsis. And so that device, it's when a story begins with the ending. And then, and then you're curious, how in the world did, did the characters in the story get to this point? One of the more uh, famous in, uh, in modern cinema is probably Titanic. Uh, when uh, elderly Rose is telling the story about the heart of the ocean and, and, uh, and you're curious about how they got to that point when they're digging for this, uh, this valuable jewel. And so then it goes backwards and there's continual flash forwards to kind of bring you up to that point. And, and so what I wanna do today is I wanna use that device, I wanna use that tool uh, in this passage uh, in order for us to see the ending first and then kind of go back to the beginning and see how it all comes together. And so with that being said, I want you to look with me at verses 16 and 17 of Romans 1, and it says this, very, very familiar, popular uh, passage, so familiar, in fact, that when we hear it, we sometimes don't stop to think about it. It's kind of like pulling out of your, your driveway and, and, and forgetting whether or not you hit the garage door or not, and then, do you guys do that? I do that like every day. And I even think about it. Sometimes I'll, I'll sit there and watch it shut, and then I'll turn the corner. I'm like, did I actually see it shut? And I turn around, you know, it, it's cognitive dissonance. And, and that happens sometimes with us. Uh, we, we read these passages like John 3, 16 and Romans 1, 16, and, and we're so familiar with them that we don't stop to think about what is actually being said. So let's, let's do that today. Romans 1, 16, Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, for in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. So the focus here obvious, obviously is the gospel, is the gospel. Now last week, we looked at verse one and verse seven, and we kind of put those together, and we talked about what it means to live in Rome, and, and really what we connected is that modern-day America is not unlike ancient Rome. Uh, modern-day America is the, uh, uh, the, the modern-day spirit of ancient Rome, and, uh, and, we, and we saw what it means to be in Christ while we are in Rome. And so as we are living in our modern-day Rome, we are still in Christ, but Paul says at the beginning when he's talking about himself, he says, He's set apart. We talked about what it means to be set apart. You have these boundaries around you. Uh, but we really didn't talk about what he set apart to, and that's what we're gonna do today. And he set apart to the gospel of God, there in verse one. Set apart to the gospel of God. And then he gets to the end and he says, I'm not ashamed of this. So, so why is Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Well, he tells us here in verses 16 and 17, it's because the gospel is the power of God and the righteousness of God. 
two different things. And so power and righteousness are the reasons why he's not ashamed. So let's consider these for just a minute. The word power there in verse 16 is a word that refers to miraculous power. It refers to a power that it's inherently powerful. It is part of its very nature and part of its very being. In Greek, it's the word dunamis, dunamis. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because it is the etymological source for the word dynamite. Now, a lot of times uh, when English Bible teachers such as myself are talking about the, the Greek word dunamis, and how the derivative in English is dynamite, will use the idea of dynamite to illustrate dunamis. That is not the correct way to understand this word. And I wanna spend just a minute uh, kind of clearing up the air with that. Because when it comes to the idea of the word dynamite, some very specific things are, are, are kind of conjured into our minds and in, into our brains. And, uh, and first off, it's explosive, uh, it's dangerous, and it's man-made. That's what dynamite is. My family and I, the other day, we were watching uh, Little House on the Prairie, uh, which has some intense moments for little ones, right? And, uh, but there's morality. That's something that's missing in modern day television. It's all the dangerous and bad stuff without any of the morality. And Little House on the Prairie still has morality. Uh, I've never watched it. I'm on season two. So if they lose that and you're saying, no, they don't, I haven't gotten that far yet. But dynamite refers to a very specific thing created by Alfred Nobel, yes. The, the inspiration for the Nobel Peace Prize is the guy who created dynamite, by the way, if you didn't know that. But the Greek word in the biblical context, dunamis, talks about a different kind of power, and it's divine power, which can be miraculous and sustaining and transformative, but is not destructive. So we wanna be careful when we're, when we're talking about the English derivatives of the original source word that we see here, for example, in the biblical New Testament. Uh, Because what we sometimes do is we want to take an English word and use it to illustrate the original Greek word that the Lord gave us. And that's like taking a copy of a copy of a copy and acting like it's the original, it's backwards. And so the word dunamis is very different here and and it has to do with something that is not man-made and something that is not explosive. So when Paul is saying that the the gospel that he's not ashamed of is the power of God, he's talking about a supernatural power that is outside of this world. And this is the meaning of today's sermon title, Living Beyond Rome's Borders. We are talking about that as we are in Rome, in Christ, we have a power that, it, that we have in us that has encompassed us that causes us to have the ability to live beyond the borders, not just to, to be set apart to the gospel, but to live beyond the borders of whatever nationality we are, which in this room, for the most part, uh, has to do with the United States of America. And so, and, and so we want to understand what this means. Now, when, when we're talking about the power of God, I want you to notice the object there in verse 16, It's not merely the supernatural power of God that Paul is not ashamed of, it's the power to salvation. It's the power that has to do with the object of salvation. And the implication here is that this power that leads to salvation is not something that can be conjured up by you, me, Billy Graham, Tim Keller, or anybody that we we can think of. It's It's this supernatural power. So let's press in on that for a minute. Jesus in the Gospels, 
Uh, uh, sometimes the gospels tell the same story in, in similar but sometimes nuanced ways, different ways. So in the gospels, there's another very famous statement that has to do with salvation. And it, and it sounds like this, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Matthew 19 and Mark 10. Now, a lot of times we will hear this verse applied to things like, with God, all things are possible. I can score this touchdown against Oregon, which didn't happen a lot yesterday. <laughs> or we'll say, with God, all things are possible. I can pass this math test. Or with God, all things are possible. I can get this promotion or I can buy the right stocks, whatever it might be. And, and so we, we quote this verse and here's what we do. Listen, we take the supernatural power of God for salvation and instead of, you, instead of understanding how it takes us beyond Rome's borders, we take it and we want to bring it into Rome's borders and we want Rome to actually set the boundaries for how the power of God is going to function in our modern day earthly kingdom. And so when Jesus is saying here with, with people, this is impossible with God, all things are possible. He's talking about salvation. And so the story goes like this. There's this young man, a young rich ruler who comes to Jesus. And, uh, and, and he has really everything he could think of, everything he wants. He's young, he's rich, he, he's a ruler. You know, it's all in the title. So he has all these things and he comes to Jesus because he hears about this man who, who claims to be the son of man, the son of God. And he comes to him and he says, he says, what good things uh, should, he, should I do to inherit eternal life? And so the question, think about the question that he's asking. What good things do I need to do to, in, to inherit eternal life? In other words, I have this stick of dynamite, Jesus. How, how can I make sure that it's the most explosive? I've made this. What good things can I do to get what you're selling? The question is off base right from the beginning. So Jesus, being who he is, so wise, he sees into the man's heart, just like he does with every individual he meets in the gospels. And so Jesus begins uh, to, to do something that none of us have the spiritual wisdom really to navigate in spiritual conversations. His response is important because he begins to attack the man's understanding of goodness because he knows that it's wrong. And he says, you know, there are none good but the Father who's in heaven. Now, this wasn't a rejection of his own deity to be God. It was in order for this young man to understand and learn this lesson, uh, this special audience that there's no one good except God, which includes Jesus, of course, and he needs Jesus in order to be saved. So he's gonna lead him down this path. And continuing his discourse with this young man, Jesus then says, but if you wish to enter into eternal life, you must keep the commandments. Now, those of us who understand salvation, we know that that in and of itself, we would think, well, okay, how does that work, Jared? Because we're always talking about, and Paul is talking about, James, all the authors of scripture that God has inspired. We know that it's not just merely check, checking off the boxes of following commandments, all the good things we do and if we're perfect. But Jesus, of course, knows us. He's the one who wrote the commandments. And so he's leading this young man down this, this path of, of understanding and wisdom. And so the young man still doesn't understand and his response to Jesus was to give a laundry list of, of the commands that he needed to follow. So Jesus, Jesus does him a solid and he gives him five different commands and they all have to do, if you look at them, with how we are supposed to treat one another. And so when you look at the 10 commandments, you know some of them have to do with our relationship with God and then some of them have to do with our relationship with one another. Remember, Jesus boiled down all of the commandments to two, love God and love others. So Jesus focuses on the others, why? Because he wanted the young rich ruler to understand the importance of, of what it means to relate with other people. 
So he's making a distinction between having faith in the law in the man's own abilities or having faith in God that produces a different kind of life, which is the difference we know this is between law and grace. And so this young man thinks that the law can save him. Jesus knows this is impossible. One commentator says this, Jesus was trying to impress on the young man both the high standard required by God and the absolute futility of seeking salvation by his own merit. And this should have elicited a response about the impossibility of keeping the law. The young man, in other words, should have listened to the commandments and said, Jesus, there's no one who can do that. If I I have to follow even five of these, if never ever breaking them, then then I'm not gonna be able to make it into heaven. But instead, the young man says, well, I've kept all those perfectly. I mean, he's, he's arrogant about it. So Jesus presses the point again. He says, well, then go, you're young, you're rich, you're a ruler, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now he's like, well, I don't know if I can do that. And he walks away sad. And so Jesus does something that I love when Jesus does this. He does it often in the gospels. There's, there's a situation. This is what discipleship looks like, by the way. Dads, moms, grandpas, grand, grandmas, uh, brothers, sisters. When life is unfolding in front of you, and you see a moment to take that life illustration and pull it back to the gospel, take those opportunities. So Jesus has this real life interaction. It's not just having worship services where you exit out of Rome and you you have these, these walls that protect you from everyone else out there. It's living in the world, living in Rome and real life happening and real misunderstanding of the gospel happening. And Jesus calls his disciples over and he says, listen, I'm gonna teach you something really important. He says, uh, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into uh, the eternal heaven. And the disciples, they respond the right way. They say, well, Jesus, how can anybody be saved? Now, when we think of a camel through the eye of a needle, we think, what a, a great metaphor, by the way. We think of a little needle and we, we can't even, you know, put a thread through that thing. Nevertheless, a camel. But a lot of commentators believe that it was a gate and uh, there, was a, there was a gate in, at the beginning, uh, front of the city. Those of you who are going to Israel in a few months, uh, you'll see something like this likely. But it's a big gate, and they would have the big gates open for all of the, the horses and camels and, and animals to go through because it was bigger than them. But then there was a little door in the gate that instead of having to open up the big gate, they would just open up the door and a camel obviously could not fit through that. So some believe that that was the eye of the needle. Uh, nevertheless, a camel's not gonna fit through it. That's the point. And so the, the disciples respond the way that they ought to and they say, well, then it's impossible. Then it's impossible. And this is when Jesus responds with this, well, with people it is. With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, what he's helping them to understand is that salvation is possible. It's just not possible with you. You are incapable of saving yourself. You can have all the 10 commandments. You can have one commandment. God could have one commandment. And he says, follow this and you'll, you'll go into heaven. And we would break it. it original sin is so deeply uh, inherently in our bones because of the sin of Adam and Eve that it is passed on to us, not unlike our eyes and, and our ears and, and, and our hair color, all the genes that we received from our parents. Sin is just embedded in us, that we are incapable of saving ourselves. It is impossible. But God says, Jesus says, but with me it is possible. 
And so yes, you, you, as, as much as a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle, you cannot be saved, but you need to understand that I have a supernatural dunamis. I have a supernatural power and ability that can do what you cannot do. And that is what Paul is talking about here. And we see it all throughout the scriptures. We see the power of God just articulated in miraculous ways. We see with Abraham and Sarah when God had given them the promise of a son and, and he told Abraham, you, can you count the stars? I bet you can't. Well, guess what? Through you, the families, the whole earth, through your family, the whole earth is gonna be blessed. Can you count the sand on the shore? I bet you can't. He said, the whole earth is gonna be as blessed as uh, through your family. You're gonna pepper the earth with your descendants. And then Abraham and Sarah wait and wait and wait. They're 100 years old and they haven't had a child and they feel like God has just abandoned them. Have you ever felt like that? Like God has given you a promise and then he's just left you out there to dry? I say how Abraham and Sarah felt. And it was, he was 100 years old, old, way beyond, Sarah was way beyond childbearing years and God is faithful to keep his promise. You know how they responded to that? God says, is anything too difficult for me? I wonder what life would look like if we really believed in the sovereignty of God. If we stopped trying to kind of create our own sticks of dynamite. And instead, we just accepted the dunamis power of God. We see it with Moses. He's, he's leading his people through the promised land and they're hungry and they're angry. They're hangry, right? 600,000 people, not just a few hundred Baptists whenever I preach a little long, we're talking about 600,000 plus people. And, and, and they, are, they are hangry. And, and, and what we see with this is, is God telling Moses, is the Lord's power limited? This is Numbers eleven twenty three. 23. Now you see whether my word will come true for you or not as he feeds them in miraculous ways. We see it with Job. 42 chapters of trials. 42 chapters of trials. It begins with him just minding his own business, serving the Lord, and then boom, 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 just trial after trial after trial. And he's just sitting there in, in sackcloth and ashes. And he starts to get upset with God. And God, God responds. God comes out. He, he does what, what none of his friends could do. And he gives him an answer. And then Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So often it seems like God's purpose is being thwarted, but God is always in control. We see it with Jeremiah. Jeremiah says, oh Lord God, behold, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. The prophet Isaiah says, behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear so dull that it cannot hear. God has a supernatural power that can reach out from heaven, grab your soul in his hand and do what you cannot do for yourself. And that is save you from your sins. This is what it means by the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And then he says righteousness. And he also, we could spend a whole lot of time on righteousness, but I just want you to notice one thing about the word. It's the righteousness of God, not of man. It's the power of God, not of man. The righteousness of, of God, not of man. It's faith in who God is and in what he has done. And the summary of this is, is simply this. It's to underscore the potency of God's intervention in Rome. It's to underscore that God is intervening in the world and he's able to, to fix the brokenness and create a new relationship that we can have with him through faith. 
in his grace through faith, as Paul says it to the church in Ephesus. You know, some years ago in the early 1900s, for whatever reason, the, uh, the, gov- the government sponsored the extermination of, um, of wolves. And uh, I guess they just were not fans of wolves. I don't know. I wasn't here. And, uh, and so they didn't realize how, how it would affect the ecosystem, specifically one of our most beautiful, wonderful parks, Yellowstone. And so as Yellowstone, which had been this beautiful park for people to visit, as they watched from the early 1900s all the way really to the 1990s, they started to see the trees and the vegetation and the flowers die off and it became less and less beautiful. It really was like man had taken dynamite to something that was beautiful. And so in the 1990s, the government decided that they were going to reintroduce wolves back into the ecosystem. And, uh, and what they saw was, was, was pretty amazing because without the wolves, the elk population in Yellowstone grew significantly because wolves hunt elk. And in the elk, in, their, in the absence of their primary predator, they began to browse on uh, heavily on the, the young trees and the young vegetation, which is why we started to see those things disappear. And then the overbrowsing prevented the growth of young trees and the, young, the death of the young trees declined the riverbank vegetation for many species, including beavers that would create habitats for other kinds of species like otters and muskrats and other animals. And then coyotes began to go out of control and they would hunt the rabbits. And so you, you saw this unbalanced, imbalanced ecosystem all because uh, this force that had been there was removed. And so in the 1990s, 31 gray wolves from Western Canada were reintroduced back into Yellowstone. And since that time in the mid 1990s, 95 and 96, we've began to see Yellowstone retransformed. We began to see the wolves cull the elk herds, which led to the decrease in the elk population, which of course changed their behavior because elk started avoiding certain areas like riverbanks which caused the vegetation to start growing. And as the vegetation started to grow, the beavers came back. And because the beavers came back, other little animals came back. And suddenly there was balance in the force again. And it transformed Yellowstone into what it is today, a place where thousands and thousands of people from all over the world want to come and spend some time. Here's the point. The reintroduction of the wolves, this power into Yellowstone provides, I think, a vivid demonstration of the impact of the intervention of a power that leads to great transformation. Now listen, I haven't started to preach yet because I've not given you the sermon in a sentence and I've not given you any points. And you're probably thinking, man, we have five minutes left and he's not done that. (laughs) I told someone this morning, I'm trying to squeeze two sermons into one and I'm aware of this. Okay, I I try to keep it at half an hour. I think I do a decent job, but we're gonna run pretty quickly through what we have these last three points. Uh, so the sermon's a little different today, but stick with me and I promise you that God's gonna bless you with his word today. Because what Paul's saying here is this, that our world, insofar as it's concerned with the gospel, we want to operate more like we're holding, and I'm talking about Christians here. I'm talking about how we operate in the church, how we operate with the, the evangelism, how we operate in all the things that we try to do for God. We want to create these things. And what happens is we take out this force that keeps everything transformed and balanced. And that thing is more than a thing, it's, it's God himself. And so Paul says there's power in the gospel. Look there in verse 16 at the word gospel. That, 
that word used in a Greco-Roman context had to do, and so we stole it as Christians uh, and we redeemed it rather. Because in Rome, when someone would talk about euangelion or, or the way we say it, gospel, they would say, hey, have you heard the gospel about our, our latest political and military victory? Did you hear about the gospel in this war? Yeah, you know, we went out and, 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 and we won. And so they would declare the good news of this political victory, this military victory. It then became to be used for the uprising of a new emperor. If you remember last week, we talked about how emperors soon became uh, understood as gods. And so they would talk about the gospel of a new emperor being sad. Sometimes we do that in our own country. Did you hear the good news of this president? And we, we take the idea of the gospel, the, the euangelion, we apply it uh, to these kinds of things happening in the boundaries of a national context. But for Christians, they understood the euangelion as the fulfillment of a long-awaited promise from passages like Isaiah 53 that, that talk about prophetically this one who would come that, that, that was so humble that, that people wouldn't even wanna look at him and, and think that maybe he is the long-awaited Messiah, the Lord. And so the prophets began to speak of him all throughout the pages of the Old Testament and Jesus comes and, and he enters this setting and he begins to transform and fulfill the understanding of the euangelion in such a powerful way that people began to say, this is what the good news is. The good news that, that Jesus has come, that he's dying on the cross for our sins because we can't do it ourselves, that he's risen from the dead, something that we cannot do. The supernatural dunamis power of God was so evident in Jesus Christ that that's what the good news is truly about, not some political victory, not some person sitting on the throne. And Jesus describes this in the, gospel, in the gospels as the gospel of the kingdom the gospel of the kingdom, which emphasizes God's sovereignty over all things and the establishment of God's reign on earth. So this gospel, this good news goes beyond Rome's borders. It goes beyond America's borders. It goes beyond China's borders. It goes beyond Korea's borders. It goes beyond Africa's borders. It is so bigger and better than anything we could imagine with anything we think we wanna do in any place on earth. And it reaches uh, out of this world. And when God's power saves you, it reaches down from heaven and abducts you and places you in a transcendent citizenship beyond the borders of whatever country you happen to be a part of. And listen, we have people in this congregation who are part who have passports from different countries. We, we have people who have passports from Nigeria and from China and from different places. So we're not just talking about our own country. We're talking about all over the world and this transforms us. So that's the end. Let me in the next three minutes, give you the beginning. All right, three quick points and we'll be done. I promise you we're gonna run through them quick. The first reason why the gospel is a power and righteousness of God is this. It's a meticulously planned fulfillment, not a backup plan. Look with me at verses one and two. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised when beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Look at that word beforehand. What this means is that the gospel is not a last second victory. We love last second victories, don't we? We love one of the greatest stories, 1980 US Olympics, when Al Michaels declares, it's a miracle. How did he say it? I have it written down to get it right. He, he says, do you believe in miracles? Yes, during the, the game's final moments. And we, we've seen that movie with Kurt Russell and, and we love that it's a, such a feel good story. But the gospel is not a last second touchdown drive by Tom Brady. It's not a last second shot by Luka Doncic, which I love and gets me excited. But the gospel's not that. Ladies, the gospel's not last second Ryan Gosling coming to Rachel McAdams and saving her from marrying the wrong guy. The gospel is the fulfillment, not a replacement, the fulfillment 
of everything God has been up to since before Genesis 1-1. You realize that? And so that's what we mean here. That's the first thing that we see is that as as, as much as we would love a Cinderella story, that's just not the way God operates. And we should have confidence that God has never lost, he's never losing, and he's always in the win column. Number two, the gospel is a person who is God, verses three and four. Concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, that's the good news, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. So the gospel is not merely just the good news. It's not just this inspirational statement. Now, in political uh, cycles, which we're about to enter into next year, and I'm just gonna ask us all to be on our best behavior through that on Facebook, but, but there are a couple of mottos, a couple of political sayings in the last uh, couple, few cycles that, that have inspired people, right? One of them was hope and change. You always ask people, what's the hope and change? No one could articulate it. They just were excited about being excited. The other one was make America great again. No one could tell you what it meant for that. They were just wanting it to be great. So I'm picking on everybody, all right? Because we're citizens of the kingdom. And so you have these slogans that we get behind and and then we get excited about this concept. And and the reason we get excited about it is because of our individualistic culture. And so when these statements come, they land on us differently. So when I think about hope and change, what's hope and change for me? Well, I have ideas about that. Owning an NBA franchise is one of them. (laughs) Living in Rivendell's another. You know, I'll go on and forth. But then when we think about America's greatness, we all have ideas. Was it the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s? The 90s were really cool for me. Ninja Turtles was really really big back then. I love that. So is that what I mean about America being great? Is that what I want? Is Is that what I want in America? And so we have these things, but what Paul is doing here is profound because he's putting the good news not on some abstract statement or motto, but on a person. And look how he does it. He says, Jesus is a person who is the descendant of David, but at the same time, he is the son of God there in verse four. And so we have these personless ideas that get floated around in Rome, but then we have Paul declaring the good news, not of a personless idea, an abstract motto, but of none other than the one and only Jesus Christ. And number three, the gospel is for all people, verses five and six through whom also we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Look at the word Gentiles there. Gentiles were always the forgotten ousted group. Jews were the ones who were historically in the, in the story of God. And so Paul declares to the Romans, the gospel is for you too. You're a Gentile, you're a Roman. You're not a Jew, you're a, Rome, a, a, a Roman. And, and the gospel is for you let me tell you, that was good news for them. Now, if not made you uh, tense enough, let me talk about immigration for a second. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna talk about immigration as a political thing. I'm gonna talk about the idea of it. So I'm not endorsing any theory of, of, of immigration. I'm just talking about the idea that we deal with as citizens in Rome, in America, when it comes to immigration. All these policies, this is one of the hottest topics right now. Did you know there is a poem on the base of the Statue of Liberty that says this? It's it's written by Emma Lazarus, it's called The New Colossus. It says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless tempest tossed to me, I lift my lamp beside the golden door. 
Now, that's a powerful poem and it's about people. You can stand there, I've stood there uh, on, on the shore and, I, and I've peered out at the Statue of Liberty and you can see the statue of, of some of the first immigrants coming to America, just striving for life. And this poem is there in the background just saying, bring them. And listen, the reason immigration is such a complex issue in America is because it can never be resolved. It'll never be resolved. And I'm not just talking about because of politics, I'm just talking about because of people. I'm talking about because of logistics, not strategy, logistics. I'm talking about spiritual logistics. It's just not gonna happen. Immigration will never be fixed. That doesn't mean that we don't try to do the right things to, to remember that people are made in the image of God, but it does mean that we need to understand that there's something to be said about the fact that there's a difference between how immigration or, or the idea, let's just call it, say this, the idea of people on the outside being brought into the inside. When you, when you try to solve that problem from the, the boundaries of Rome, it's never gonna be resolvable. We're just gonna always bicker and fight about it. But when you understand the spiritual element of it, that we are made in the image of God and we live by a higher standard as Christians. And, we, and so we're gonna talk about, uh, we're not talking about that, we're talking about what it means to be followers of Jesus. So listen to these verses, Leviticus 19.34 says, the foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born, love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt, I am the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 10 says, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. Matthew 25, Jesus says, I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick, you looked after me. I was in prison, you visited me. Jesus calls believers to live by a different, higher transcendent standard. And so yes, we'll have the discussions politically. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the heart of someone who trusts in Jesus and how we view a person. And this is the same conversation that Jesus had with the young rich ruler. So the idea is this, we're not living in Jerusalem, guys. We're living in Babylon. We cannot look at, we cannot look at America and try to make it a new Jerusalem. It's not, it was never meant to be. It's Babylon. We're living in exile. We're living in exile. And I think that that is such an important perspective for us when we live in the world, because when Jesus gave instructions to the Jews who were living in Babylon, he gave them instructions that said, live there and, and, and build houses there and, and plant gardens there and, the, and love the people there until the true kingdom of God comes. So we're waiting. So we're always gonna feel homeless. And so we get back to the end when Paul says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed. I think a lot of us are living in shame of the gospel. And here's how we do that. We live in shame for the gospel when we feel like the good news of Jesus is not good enough and we try to make whatever country we live in our home. And we try to put all of our eggs into the basket of our, of our, of our nationality rather than first understanding that we are followers of Jesus and second, we are American or second, we are from China, or second, we are from Nigeria, or whatever it may be. So Paul says, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed that I'm a Christian before I'm anything else. Why? Because it's the power of God to salvation. Salvation of my soul. We're not talking about saving some, some ground, some earth. We're talking about our souls here. So are you ashamed of the gospel? 
Do you hold on to the power of God for salvation and righteousness? Or are we trying to take our own proverbial sticks of dynamite and try to recreate our own new Jerusalem? We are in Rome, but we are more importantly in Christ. So listen, if you're a follower of Jesus today, here's my encouragement to you. Ask yourself today, do I understand that I'm living in Babylon or do I try to act like I'm living more in Jerusalem? Or, or are you someone who's not yet understood what it means to accept and receive the power of the gospel of God in your life? We invite you to go to our website, click the button, I wanna know more about Jesus. But this altar is gonna be a place that's open for you to come and pray and ask the Lord, Lord, have I, have I acted with shame in my life with how I've, how I've represented the gospel? Do I really hold on to that, that supernatural inherent power that can transform uh, my life and everything around me by your power and not my own? Because listen, some of us, we're looking for hope in all the wrong places. Next year, I promise you, there are gonna be a lot of us who are looking for hope in all the wrong places. But as it's been said, it doesn't matter who's in the White House, it matters who's on the throne and God is on the throne. So we care about what's happening in DC. We don't live by it, amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness. I wanna pray, Lord, that you would help us as we think through the implications of the gospel. And, and Lord, I confess in my life so often, Lord, I try to live by my own power and by my own righteousness. And like the young rich ruler, Lord, I come before you and I, and I try to look at all the things that I'm doing to try to conjure up and, and manufacture power. But Lord, I confess I, I can't do it. And I pray that this church would be a place, Lord, where we are full of people who understand that we need the power, the grace, and the righteousness of God and God alone. So help us, Lord, help us not to try to take your power and make it our own, but just to experience the transforming power of the gospel of Christ and understand how it truly is good news. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. At Tate Springs, we believe God is telling a story of redemption that can only be found in Jesus Christ. If you'd like more information on how you can have that kind of a relationship, please visit tatesprings.com and let us know. We love you and want to help you discover your part in God's story.